I'm Dr. Jill Wiener. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice, to provide a nuanced, honest, and educational examination of systemic racism. I am so excited to have with me today, Dr. Natasha Washington. Dr. Washington is an advocate and performance improvement expert who has worked with healthcare systems, US government agencies, and numerous policymaker groups to ensure that the rights of all patients are respected, particularly the most vulnerable populations. She is currently the executive director of Consumers Advancing Patient Safety, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to fostering the role of the consumer as a partner in pursuing healthcare that is safe, compassionate, and just. Dr. Washington also heads an independent consulting firm, ATW Health Solutions, based in Chicago, Illinois. Shaped by her passion and belief in social justice, Natasha has earned recognition nationally for work in health equity and patient safety. Natasha, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking time to chat with me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And and I, I love it that um, I said, yes, read, read that 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 bio because uh, now I know I need to go and update it. So uh, I'm no longer with Consumers Advancing Patient Safety and solely focused on the work of ATW Health Solutions. But I think that's, you know, honestly, the reason why we're even in conversation on today. So yeah, no, excited and uh, pleasure to meet you as well, Jill. Yes, thank you, thank you. Um, yes, it's it's funny looking back at old bios and just being like, oh, that's not doesn't really reflect what I'm doing. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's always lovely to see the progression. So I'd I'd love to hear. Yes. Um, you have so many degrees and so much experience and so much impact and and just looking at the list of clients that you've worked with, it's so impressive. I wonder if you could share a little bit about how you got started in the health equity space um, and. Um, what's led you up i know it's like obviously you can't just talk about that in 30 minutes or so but but an overview of what got you to where you are now and and what what really drives you now and lights you up yeah the short version of it is is uh, you know uh being raised in a family uh that promoted social responsibility uh, and um, and uh, recognition of uh, community uh, leadership, and so in in my household, it wasn't just enough to you know have a job and 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 be productive on that end. That you really had to um, you know also have your voice um, being used for the greater good of the community. And we all find different ways uh, to do that. My father and my mother had different ways of, of, of doing that. Uh, but being the product of their household, you know, the short version is that, you know, it was, it was just something that was, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, indoctrinated in, in terms of, um, uh, you know, the, the framework that we were taught to live by, right? Um, and so equity, um, as I matriculated and, and, you know, processed through my educational career and then developing my professional career, um, having been so connected to the issues of the community and recognizing the issues of the Black community in a real way, in a meaningful way, it allowed me to see how um, there was um, a disparity between what I was being taught in the books and what healthcare really looked, health 
service delivery really looked like, right, um, in Living Color. It also helped me to understand um, the differentiation between what I was being asked and required by my employers when I was in corporate and doing, you know, healthcare transformation projects um, in corporate. It helped me to understand um, how I was being actually asked to do things in a way that did not necessarily benefit all people. And so um, for that reason, I decided to um, get really serious about my research, the formal research, because I do recognize that there is a whole formal trajectory to this, you know, in terms of, you know, being recognized and credentialed as a professional. And so I began to do that. And ultimately, it um, led up to me getting to the point where I said enough already, I'm going to start my own business and do it the way I believe um, we should be helping health systems improve uh, and, and more importantly, uh, improving the health outcomes for all people. So uh, leading me up to uh, 2014, um, start of ATW Health Solutions. And I'll say this, the real catalyst behind ATW Health Solutions, so yeah, you know, I had all my work, work in the community, you know, uh, um, my professional work, the schooling, um, you know, the international tours, the international studies, all of these things, you know, working um, in concert for me, and uh, for the most part, benefiting me. But in 2009, what the part that you probably hadn't read in my bio, I actually lost my father to a preventable medical error. And um, because I worked in the health system um, for an entire year, Jill, um, I was so, uh, the, the, gr the grief that I was going through and just the trauma, the, you know, he was 59 years old. Uh, and uh, basically we were, um, he went in to have a surgery, uh, completed the surgery. Um, uh, eight days post-surgery, he dies. Um, I asked the question. He was, you know, perfectly fine. He seemed to be, you know, um, you know, making great progress. Uh, and when I asked the questions about, you know, what happened, the hospital just clammed up. Nobody wanted to talk about it. Nobody was willing to have a meaningful conversation with me. And so when I began to use their words, their jargon, and I began to, you know, talk about sentinel events and whether or not there was going to be, you know, um, <clears throat> excuse me, whether or not there was going to be a root cause analysis, you know, they asked me, who did I know? That was the question. Who did I know? And so for them, it was more threat of a lawsuit than it was just having a meaningful conversation with me and my family about what happened to this 59-year-old you know, healthy man, as far as we were concerned, um, and, and why he didn't make it out of the hospital. So we were told that he died of a heart attack. Um, uh, that didn't sit well with me. I had, a, we, my family had an independent autopsy done, an independent autopsy revealed that my father actually died from a pulmonary embolism with you and, which you and I both know are preventable. Um, and, and it was that death in that instance where everything came together for me, right? Because sometimes the science of this work and the work that we see on the ground, you know, it, you know, it, it, it doesn't all come together as uniformly, right? It, it doesn't, it doesn't, it, it makes sense, but you know, you have to spend some time really picking the brain to figure out, okay, how do I address this? How do I attack it? But I can tell you um, at his passing, it all came together for me. 
in, in, in one day. It was like, at that point, I understood how social determinants impact outcomes. At that point, I understood how um, institutional racism impacts uh, the way in which an organization uh, would even deliver a communication of a death, right, to a family, to a Black family. So it's those things um, that really inspired me. So ATW Health Solutions is actually named in my father's legacy. Uh, and so that's how I got started. Wow, that's a really powerful story. And I'm, I'm so sorry to hear about the passing of your father. Um, and in some way, it feels very poetic and beautiful that from his passing, you were able to continue his, his legacy of activism that, he's all, that he had raised you with. Yeah, because God doesn't make any mistakes and he will give us circumstances, whether they're circumstances that um, we don't quite understand because they don't feel as good, right? And the, the emotions of it and all of that. But when you sift through it you and you really connect with your, your heart, um, you connect the heart and head, you recognize that that's really the energy, that that's really the motivation. That was really, like I said, the catalyst to my next level in the work. I don't just do this work because, um, you know, of my own personal interest. I do this work not only because of my own personal interest, because that's a, that's a good thing too, but I do it because I really am committed to impacting the lives of other. I don't want other families to experience what my family experienced. I want other Black folks to understand what I didn't understand 25 years ago, right? I want the next generation to be able to spread this stuff like wildfire so that their children and their children's children do not have the same uh, histories that we have. I was just at dinner with some board colleagues uh, a, a few days ago, and um, my two white colleagues are sitting across the table from me. Both, uh, both of them are attorneys, uh, and one says, oh yeah, I'm going to visit my father who's um, 95 years old, and the other one has a father who's 97 years old, and we just so happen to just come out of a conversation around health disparities uh, and equity, and I said, you know, speaking of equity, let me give you an example of the reason why this is so meaningful. I said, you, your father's 97, your father's 92. I said, my father died at 59. His father died at 62. And I can continue to go on and on and on. And I said, and, this, and they didn't die because of what you hear in the news about, you know, um, uh, gangs and guns and things of that nature. They died of health-related issues. And in my father's circumstance, you know, hospital harm. And, and this, these are the things that we don't talk about as a community. So my hope is that we build up, we were, you know, talking a little bit earlier about resiliency. My hope is that we build up resiliency within our community just to begin to share. Because the trauma of what we've went through historically um, has caused us to suppress a lot of things. And so we don't commonly share, you know, about our health. We don't commonly talk about, and even when we go to the doctor, you know, we give him half of the story and it just really depends on how close we're connected to him and things of that nature. And Oftentimes, we're not really that connected to him because, you know, for us, you know, he represents something that we're not necessarily aligned with, but we recognize his role and or, uh, and or position and, 
the necessity of it in our lives, right? Uh, and so my hope is that we're able to engage and encourage our people to speak up because speaking up is, is, is also part of the answer as well, right? Um, what I learned as I got on a national platform was that white middle-aged women did not have a problem standing up talking about all the things that were going on with little Johnny and the things that were going on with their son, with their husband, Greg, and, and, and how the health system needed to change. They did not have that problem. They were very vocal about it. And as a matter of fact, they were the only ones that were at the table. And so my commitment was once I made it to that level was to not leave the table because I needed to make certain that I represented the truth about other communities. And there are other experiences because what we recognize is, is that our life experiences, our values, our beliefs, and ultimately our cultures do shape who we are as individuals, which means that you riding down the street, one, uh, you know, you riding down the street and the way in which you cruise down the street might look different from the way in which I cruise down the street. I like to put my top back and my music up or whatever those things might be, but those are differences that are related to our values, our belief, our culture, our life experiences, and that we have to be respectful of those things um, in their differences. And, and so I just wanted to make certain that I was bringing a different voice and also um, opening up an opportunity for other people who look like me, and even those who don't look like me, but are often not heard, to provide a platform for them to be able to share their stories as we go through healthcare transformation because um, the patient engagement piece is, is hugely uh, been a success in terms of pushing health service delivery in the right direction. Uh, so much, so much truth and so much wisdom, uh, Natasha. I, and it's because you've been you've, you've touched on something that's not even necessarily related to health but like cultural differences and 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 i talk a lot about with people on this podcast about about white centering and how it's like white people are raised in this white culture so we think that what we do is normal and that what other people do that's if it's different isn't normal and and that is so so culturally tone deaf and also so dangerous because just because it isn't my way doesn't mean it's wrong even though we're raised in this toxic environment that teaches us to believe that so uh, it's so important what you're doing to to get this platform and and gosh just hearing what you're saying every time i hear these stories it it it's hard to listen to because it is the truth and and for people listening hearing you know what you went through with your dad and how there are are, are black people out there who are just like i who who would do not trust the healthcare system, not because they are mistrustful people. That's right. um, I, I just spoke with someone, um, oh, it was Dr. Um, oh gosh, Dr. Susie Lopez, who was a, a woman I interviewed a couple of weeks ago. She mm -hmm. called it broken trust, not yeah. distrust because the broken trust, it's on the fault of the healthcare Absolutely system. Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. And, yeah. it, and, 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 and so, you know, think about it, Jill. The reality of it is, is that we talk about the oppression of black people as if this were something that happened so, you know, before Christ, right? Mm -hmm. And the reality of it is, the reality of it is, is that I am the granddaughter of a sharecropper. The reality of it is, is that I am the second generation from folk that were raised on plantations and that, that uh, you know, um, 
uh, serve their plantation owners as a living. That's the reality of it. And I live in the year 2021 right with you. So the, so, so what, what I, um, you know, um, beg to differ with the thinking that we've moved beyond this, right, is that, uh, you know, the, my grandmother's life and lifestyle um, and in her life experience then uh, transitioned to be the foundation of my mother, my mother, not my great, great grandmother, my mother. Right. And, and then my mother's life, life experiences, foundation, so on and so forth, then transitioned to be my foundation. Right. And so, I, you know, I, I just so happened to be, you know, not only the first college graduate, but then went on to be the first, uh, you know, graduate with a terminal degree. So, and, you know, and so these experiences are so critically important for us to share uh, because the difference in me going through, uh, um, uh, you know, these educational programs, it, it, you know, is starkly different from my colleagues, right? Who many of them, uh, you know, had, you know, um, uh, uh, their their experience was were, were just different. Whether it was family support, whether it was support, you know, from the educational system, whatever those things might be, and so what I, you know. Um, what I think is critically important is that we keep the conversation going and that we make certain that we are opening up um, uh, spaces for the voices that are least heard to be a part of the conversation so that we don't leave people behind. This is not about advancing the already advanced. This is about making certain that we level up. Okay, and and we are in, um, you know, I, I just think we're in such a pivotal, you know, time frame when I think about, I don't know how you felt about it, but COVID, I, I was depressed, I, I could hardly work, um, you know, for a couple of weeks as I saw those disparities numbers, you know, being publicly, you know, shared. And, and quite frankly, um, for a little while there, I was so discouraged about my own work, right? You read a bio and you, and you say, oh, you know, you've done a lot, but I felt like that a lot meant absolutely nothing when I saw those COVID numbers. And oh, by the way, for those of us who are practitioners in this work, I didn't, it, didn't, it didn't take me to get to the point where they started to share the actual numbers. We knew that it was impacting our community differently even before the numbers were being calculated. Why? Because we hear the stories, because we're on the ground, because we know, you know uh, what's being reported within our health system and unfortunately what was happening in my own family the deaths that occurred in my own family, right? And so, you know, going through that experience and then on top of that, the death of George Floyd, uh, you know, and then seeing white America stand up and say, oh, we got a problem, you think? Yeah. You know, you think? Um, and so, and so we, we also need to be, also, you know, mindful of, who's at the table for the shape of, for the sake of who's shaping the conversation. And here's the reason why I say that. You've lived this thing, you know this thing, Jill, on a different level, meaning the books you've wrote, 
and the organizations that you've engaged, the things that you have experienced, right, brings a different voice and different um, level of expertise to the conversation. What's happening is in the landscape is you see the elevation of people who Oh, I just want to raise my hand and now I'm a healthcare, you know, equity expert, right? Enough already with that. And so we also need to make certain that there's a, a sense of accountability in this work as well. Uh, because what happens with tokenism, okay, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm sure we can go on and on and on about this one, but what happens with tokenism Ooh. is that, you know, you'll have the, you know, organization you know, raise up the one or two, um, um, you know, uh, ethnic minorities um, in, you know, within uh, the ranks, but they're not necessarily ready because of their lack of expertise or lack of maturity in the conversation, but they're ready to get the bigger check, but they're ready to get, you know, and so we have to balance this thing. We have to make certain that people that are at the table are authentically at the table for the right reasons and for the advancement of colored people, period right? This is not time to play. <laughs> and this is not time to play up your own personal resumes, right? Uh, for the sake of what's going on in, 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 in this environment. Because like I said, our, our children's children and our children's children's children, right, will be impacted by the work that we do uh, uh, this decade. Hi there, Dr. Jill Weiner here. This podcast is sponsored by Conscious Anti-Racism, my online course with Dr. Maisha Claiborne created for listeners like you who are eager to learn practical tools that will help you find your place in the fight against systemic racism. We even have a CME accredited version for healthcare professionals. Visit ConsciousAntiRacism.com for more information. Now back to the episode. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you were just mentioning like the paycheck, often people aren't, the, the tokenism like isn't often even financially compensated or anything. It's just like, oh, you're the right. person like sit on this committee, do this, do this stuff because we want to check the box of what we're doing. And you're going to have to just find time to do it on top because that's of course what you want to spend your time and energy doing without being compensated. You know, like it's even that side of it gets so, gets so twisted around. Um, I love, I love the quality and safety aspect of what you do because like I was a hospitalist as I was telling you and uh, for anyone listening who doesn't know what that means basically I was, I worked in, in the hospital setting taking care of hospitalized patients who had non-surgical medical problems mm -hmm. and, and there's this huge move towards quality and safety in the healthcare system that's been like in every other system for decades, if not longer, the aviation and, and, and all these other organizations that, that have been paying attention to it with the attempt of you know, decreasing medical errors and, and, um, and bad patient outcomes. And it's thought of as, as such a system thing, like can I do a checklist and making sure that everyone gets their pre-op antibiotic and, and making sure that like my, my transition of care things, mm -hmm. that's very, um, I mean, there's a million different ways. There's a million, there's different million different holes in the Swiss cheese of, of, of how medical errors get made. And you're, what you're doing is like bringing this whole other human yeah. to it. Yeah. Like, because it's real. Yeah, exactly. So, so in other words, in other words, you know, um, here's what happened. 
and and I am grateful for the work of our prior president um, Obama and what he did with the Affordable Care Act because what most folks don't realize or or um, recognize is that that work actually funded a lot of the quality and safety improvement work that was going on in the United States. So while everybody's arguing over whether we expand Medicaid or not, the reality of it was that um, funding within the ACA also uh, put hospitals on notice that they needed to get their acts together as well from a quality improvement standpoint. And to that point is how I ended up on the national platform um, federally doing uh, healthcare transformation work with a focus on quality and safety. Um, and it was because of ACA dollars. Okay, let me start there. So that's one. And then the other piece of it that that was really important is and and again I give credit to the agency leaders that I was working up under but when I went to go I'll never forget when I went to go and meet with um, uh, two uh, leaders for um, the Centers for uh, Medicare and Medicaid Services H at the HHS level federal level um, I they gave to me a document to kind of read about the national campaign it's a large-scale quality improvement project we got over 6,000 hospitals in the country you know the the goal was to have over 80% of those hospitals participating in this quality and safe, safety improvement activities da 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 and the first thing that I look on there and I see, so well, how do you have a federally funded program and equity is not a part of the goals? Yeah. And they said, you know, that's a great point. And so I credit um, those agency leaders that within their own power, then shifted that uh, program. So by the next year, the more than 4,000 hospitals across the country that were doing this work, that each of those uh, associations, whether it be the State Hospital Association or the National um, Hospital Association or any of the other agencies that they were partnering with, there was a requirement for them to have an equity agenda. Okay. And so you have to give credit where credit is due because um, I don't know that that had ever been done before. That Typically, and you and I know, typically what you see from an equity standpoint is there's this separate project and we're going to focus on health disparities and we don't fully integrate it into the work that we're doing. And so that's my philosophy. That is the model that I teach. That is what I believe we need to be doing is that equity needs to be at the front and center of every single thing that we do. And it needs to be fully integrated throughout all of our processes, throughout all of our systems. You need to have that equity lens. How do we get there? You need to have folks um, that are at the table that understand it, that are practitioners, um, and also that have lived experiences that will help you carve out and identify where the opportunities are. And that's what I was able to bring to the table as a Black woman and as a health professional um, that was trained and working in healthcare transformation, right? And then, oh, by the way, I have this lived experience, right? with my father and with my son and other people as a caregiver um, that also helped to shape why we need to look at this differently. And I'll give you this as an example. Um, you know, if you speak English as a second language and it is not your preferred language, 
um, you know, help me to understand why would you think that if English is your surgeon's primary language and all of the nurses' primary language, um, and your family, of course, you know, um, where English is not their preferred language, right? And it's a secondary. Why they couldn't be a, a further hole in that system that you described with the Swiss cheese, right? Mm -hmm. Why, you know, help me understand why America wasn't thinking, right? That the way in which we communicate uh, and communication happens to be the number one cause of safety issues, which you and I know, but that inability to be able to communicate, comprehend, translate, or it further exacerbates the probability of uh, harm, you know? And I, you know, I just wonder how all of these great, you know, novel, uh, you know, well-documented experts in the country, you know, have been doing all of this work over the years, and you didn't even think, you know, to think about, but hey, if that's not your experience, right, because uh, English is there, is, is what, you know, is the dominant language, right, if that's not your experience, why would you bring it to the table, uh, in terms of in terms of uh, 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 some of these exercises that we've been going through, so yes, um, bringing those pieces to the table are very important uh, because healthcare is just not about the clinical processes and the way we systematize activities. Okay, healthcare is about people, right? And oh, by the way, one person doesn't equal all people. Okay, and so we have to make certain that we create a system that values, like I said, the preferences and the beliefs of all people. And, you know, it's not an easy thing to do, uh, but it is an exercise that we have to figure out how. Um, and one of the things, one of the ways that, that we make a difference in the work that we do is, like I said, offering the voice and training, just like I have lay people, I've recruited deacons from my church, okay, to serve on national committees, okay, around particular chronic diseases and around particular health service delivery, um, um, you know, issues that we're looking at. Uh, so, you know, whether it's, you know, a, a, a friend of a friend, who I know someone in their family has struggled with diabetes. I, I create that capacity or my organization and, and my team has created that capacity by number one, giving them a voice. And then number two, helping elevate their voice by you know, educating them and helping them to understand how their story right? Stories that they believe are very simple, but how their story really does impact uh, healthcare transformation. And, and that's, I think, one of the things that I am most proud of, um, because we have to continue to bring these voices to the table so that we know that, you know, the life experience of white America is not the life experience of every American. And, and, and that's the way we're going to change things. 
I wanted to touch a little bit, we're running out of time, but I wanted to touch a little bit about trauma that you've mentioned and the connection with mental health, the trauma from systemic racism and mental health. And I, I, we got at this a little bit, you were talking about how it impacted you at the beginning of COVID uh, when, you, with it, when the numbers were coming out. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I know we can talk for hours about that, but uh, yeah, no, I so so the reason why I wanted to bring it up, or I, and I appreciate you expanding on it, is because one of the top lessons that I learned going through COVID was self care. Mm-hmm. And you, as a physician, understand what I mean when I talk about self care, right? So, um, um, you know, you are the second patient right um and in this process of healing right with dealing with the patient and so you know there is trauma that we deal with (laughs) in this work and quite frankly i hadn't realized how much of it that i gunny sack because as a black woman and i'm certain that i know you talked about this in your book but that level of resilience that you have to build up just to be able to do the work like i don't you know like i have to be literally robotic in my in 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 the way in which I live um and I don't have much time to cry and I don't have much time to sulk and I don't have much time to spend you know touring the world to figure out what I want to do next I just don't have that time because of the 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 reliance upon the work that you do meaning you know your place and space and role in all of this and so um, quite frankly, uh, COVID was traumatizing. And it was traumatizing in the sense that I realized how much um, my own heart had become devastated by the work that I have, you know, created for myself and the work that I have, you know, said, this is what I'm committed to, right? And so there was a time when I actually started calling on my mentors and others and just um, you know, praying on it and, and, and spending time with others who support me to ask the question, you know, should I even continue this? Because it is causing an effect on me personally. And when it causes an effect on me personally, and you know, it then causes an effect physically on you. Right. Um, and, and for sake of not wanting to be one of those early statistics, for sake of, you know, wanting to be able to manage my own personal care um, better. I did. I spent some time thinking about whether I wanted to continue the journey. Um, and, you know, uh, God bless that, you know, I, I'm still I'm still here. But there is um, a trauma that we deal with in managing all of these circumstances. No one knows what it's like to be discriminated against on a daily basis, unless you're the one being discriminated against. No one knows what it's like to be in one of these circumstances or circumstance like my family was when you lose a loved one and it's at the hands of a health system and they won't even have a conversation with you, right? But if Heather uh, uh, wanted to have the conversation, they have no problem you know, sitting down, talking to her in a very um, dignified way, right? And then I have to get undignified in order for them to respond to me, right? So no one knows what those experiences feel like on a daily basis because we honestly, we gunny sack it. We, you know, I got to hold it in my chest and no, it didn't hurt daddy. And no, I'm not going to cry about it. And yeah, the teacher 
you know, did me this way and that one. And you just build up to the point we talked about earlier, you build up this level of resilience that keeps you pushing, keeps you pushing, keeps you pushing. And, um, and it's ever, all of us have a point, I guess is, um, you know, all of us have a line, all of us have this threshold um, of what we can bear, right? And I, and I hit up against my wall during COVID. Um, and so we do need to focus on that. And we need to focus on um, the benefit of um, mental health providers and getting rid of the stigma around mental health uh, for the further progress of our community or further progress of communities of color. Oh God, I feel like we just started a whole other conversation. I wish we could spend the next the next couple hours talking. It is it is past our time. And so I do wanna I do wanna be respectful of that. Um, but let's have let's keep having this conversation and and what you've brought up is so important and mental health and trauma, that's something uh, very near and dear to my heart. And and again, as you're saying, like the lived experience, you can't know it unless you have it and or unless at the very least taking the time to ask and consider that it might be different for other people and, and truly listening and hearing. So thank you so much. Um, how, how can people find you, work with you? Um, do you have social media? Um, I, well, I'll put your personal website and the ATW Health website um, in the show notes, but is there anywhere else that you would like people to follow you or find you? Well, well so please, um, if you go to Facebook, uh, Twitter, or Instagram, I'm Dr. Natasha, so D-R-K-N-I-T-A-S-H-A. Um, but I encourage you all to uh, go to the company uh, website, uh, which you will share, Jill, um, just to find out more about what we're doing and also to see how you, as just a, you know, everyday consumer of, of healthcare, can also get um, into the work or play a role um, in shaping what our health system, what our next health system will look like. Uh, and that's through our patient partner innovation community. So PPIC, uh, the patient partner innovation community, and you can find it on our webpage. Uh, basically, it's the voices of people, just like you and I, Jill, um, sharing their experiences um, sharing their uh, values and, and their beliefs and their preferences. Uh, and, you know, we've created um, a, a curriculum around uh, institutional racism and implicit bias with, trans, with the transgender uh, community, uh, with the Black community, uh, with, you know, just others. So we take it down to the subpopulation level and we talk to real people about their experiences in the health system and how they feel the health system would be better partners with them in managing their care, um, given their, you know, like I said, personal beliefs and experiences, um, you know, values and lifestyle. And we have to respect that. And, and I just don't think that we do enough of it. So please, 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 you know, for those that are interested in, in being a voice, we invite you uh, to do that. And also as well on, uh, on LinkedIn. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Natasha Washington. Such an amazing human being and, and activist and all the work you're doing. Thank you so much. And uh, it was lovely, lovely chatting with you. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you so much, Jill. I appreciate you and all the work you do, you're doing as well. Thank you. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. 
please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.